Amen. You can be seated in Life Church. Good morning. It is, yeah, that's great. You can always answer back. I'm fine with that. It's good to see you this morning, church. Whether you're with us in the room or online today, we're just really grateful that you are here and uh, with us. I hope you have a Bible with you. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 12. And so whether that's in your you know, old-fashioned paper Bible or on your device, I'd love it if you would go ahead and turn there. And uh, I'll just add, if we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. Um, you know, we see folks who are coming back in the room week after week, and we're really grateful for that. And then I also know in this service in particular that there are a handful of folks who would prefer to be here at the earlier hour, but you heard our request this week to help us create a little bit of space in our 9 a.m. service, which is, it was again this morning, just about as full as we feel like is safe in this season. Um, but as you can see in the room today, and perhaps as you can see online, there are a few extra chairs in this particular service. And so if you're uh, sitting at home and thinking about whether or not it's time to come back, um, if you're healthy, we would encourage you to come back. Um, but this is the service where it's easiest to land right now, our 11 a.m. service. So, and so I'm grateful for all of you who have chosen to be here at this time and who are helping us as we just gather together around the word of God to hear from him and to be changed by him. Um, in life, the process of growing into maturity is both necessary and painful, right? It's necessary because we're not born fully formed, right? We're not born into the world as mature, wise individuals who have everything figured out. And it's painful because we usually have to learn some pretty difficult and challenging lessons along the way, right? The path to maturity, it's a necessary path and it's a painful path. And I think as you think about that, even just look at your own life and think about the ways that you have grown and matured over the last five or 10 or 20 years, and you'd probably agree that that road, that path towards maturity, has not always been smooth and easy. Like certainly it's bumpy at times, certainly it's painful at times. Man, that has been true for me throughout my life. It was true for me when I was very, very young. I remember being the kind of kid who, when you told me to do something or not to do something, I just assumed that you didn't know enough information and that really was like a better way to do what you're trying to get me to do. And so, like if my mom, if she told me, James, don't touch the stovetop, it's hot, like I would just assume that, she, that there was a way to touch the hot stovetop and she just hadn't figured it out yet. And so I took it upon myself to discover the way to touch that hot stovetop so that I could tell her about it. And of course, there isn't a way to touch a hot stovetop. And so after, you know, multiple second degree burns, I would eventually learn that lesson, the painful way, but it was a necessary lesson for me to learn, right? That road towards maturity, it's painful and it's necessary. And the same has been true in my walk with the Lord as I have grown in what the Bible calls sanctification, right? The process of every day looking a little bit more like Jesus, that has often been a painful while necessary process for me. And that's the way the Bible says that it will be. And the Bible tells us that that process towards growing in sanctification, that process towards looking a little bit more like him every day, becoming more mature, 
The, process, the Bible tells us that that process is a one degree at a time kind of process. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus from degree to degree, right? One small step at a time. And often it's gonna feel like one step forward and two steps back, but that's just the reality of this necessary but painful road towards maturity. One of our biggest issues is that we want that one degree at a time process to really be like a one mile at a time kind of process. We want change to come quickly. We want it to come easily. We want to be mature instantly. And that makes sense given the fact that just about everything in our lives these days is a lot easier and a lot more instant because of technology, right? You can cook your dinner in seven minutes in your Instapot and you can pull up virtually anything that you might possibly want to know in moments on your smartphone and you can order something from Amazon that will sometimes be delivered the same day that you've ordered it. Like everything in life is easy and instant because of technology, but technology cannot make sanctification easy. It cannot make it instant, right? Our growth into maturity It's necessary, it's painful, and yes, indeed, it's even often slow. But there is good news for us in the passage we're considering this morning. While this road towards being mature is a necessary and painful and slow road, it is not a road that we walk alone. In fact, as we'll see just so wonderfully in this passage this morning, It's a road that we walk with the Lord at work in us and through us so that we can be sure we will arrive at our destination and so that we can be sure that the steps we take along that road are steps that are empowered by his grace and strength and will. Let's read this morning, Philippians 2, 12 through 18, and then I'll pray for us. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Church, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray to him. Father, we come thankful for your word and we pray that you would give us today eyes that are able to see and understand the truths that are here ears that are that are ready to listen as you speak to us as individuals in this room and hearts that are soft to the work that you are doing in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding today that we might walk in obedience. I pray that you would stir each and every one of us to obey these words as you would have us. And I am so grateful 
for the fact that your word, it never returns to you empty. It never returns to you without accomplishing the purpose that you have established for it. And so I pray that you would accomplish that purpose in us now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, churches, we're looking at this passage. Um, I think it's helpful to think about these seven verses as a series of three connections. And so I want to show you like three things that are connected to one another here. In verses 12 and 13, we're going to look at the connection between God's work and our work. God's work and our work in verses 12 and 13. In verses 14 through 16, we'll look at the connection between our contentment and our mission, our witness. And then in verses 17 and 18, we'll look at the connection between our service and our joy. So you can kind of keep track of where we are as we walk through each of those three connections. Let's start with that first one, the connection between our work and God's work. Paul begins in verse 12 with the word, therefore. And that's, way, that's his way of connecting what he's saying right now back to what he has said previously, particularly in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2, the passage we looked at last week, when Paul launched into this great hymn of praise, praising Jesus for his perfect humility and his subsequent exaltation. Right in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Paul climbs down the ladder of Jesus' humility, reminding us that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He reminds us that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He talks about Jesus' incarnation and the complete humility that that demonstrated from Jesus. And then he adds to that humble incarnation Jesus' humble crucifixion. He says that he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And that's, that's the bottom of the ladder in Paul's mind, right? Jesus is as fully and completely humble as he might possibly be. But because of that humility, Paul then says, God has now highly exalted Jesus. He has given to Jesus the name, Lord, that is above every name so that when the name of Jesus is declared at the end of history, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee will bow before him in worship. Paul's pointing back to all of those realities and he's saying that those realities about the life of Jesus Christ, there's a logical connection between his life and his work and now the life and the work of every Christian. In the same way that Christ was humble and obedient, Christians are to be humble and obedient as well. But notice in verse 12, Paul tells us exactly what kind of obedience he's describing or expecting. He says, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So not just when I'm looking over your shoulder, not just when I'm with you physically in the flesh, but even more because I'm not looking over your shoulder, because I'm not with you in the flesh. Here's the obedience that he's calling us to. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now I feel like the first thing we should note as we think about that command from Paul 
is that there is a massive and glorious difference between working out your salvation and working for your salvation. If you work for your salvation, then you say your work is what produces the love and favor and affection of God. But if you work out your salvation, you're saying because I've already been loved and I've already been favored and I've already received the full measure of God's affection for me in Christ Jesus, I can therefore work. If you work for your salvation, you think that the way God feels about you and approves of you is contingent on your obedience. But if you work out your salvation, you rightly realize that the way God feels about you and thinks about you and approves of you is not contingent on your obedience, but on Christ's perfect obedience for you. If you work for your salvation, like the the core, the ethos, the fundamental message of your life is I need to get to work so that God will be happy with me. But if you work out your salvation, you recognize that Christ's work is finished. It is perfect. It is complete. It lacks nothing. And so now I am freed not to get to work to earn anything from God, but to get to work out of gratitude and for the glory of God. Church, there's just a massive difference between working for and working out your salvation. And by the way, that that difference really illustrates helpfully, I think, the difference between Christianity and every other religion or system of faith in the world. And every other religion or system of faith in the world, the, the core is the work that you do for God. But according to the Bible, the core The core of Christianity, its very heartbeat, is Christ's perfect, finished work for you. And so every other religion in the world that says at its core, get to work, get your act together, pull yourself up by by your bootstraps, make something of yourself, clean up your act, get it together. At its core, that message is get to work. Christianity's core message is it is finished because of what Christ has done for us on the cross And so we can celebrate the fact that Paul here does not say work for your salvation, but instead he says work out your salvation. He's saying because of what Christ has done for you, now let the the implications of Christ's life and death work themselves out in your life. And he's talking there primarily about our sanctification. Paul would say that Christ did not die and rise again that we might be mere infants in the faith. He died and rose again so that he might present to the Father mature, whole, complete believers in the faith. He wants to present sanctified believers in the faith. That's what, why Paul said he, he did everything that he did. In Colossians 1.28, Paul says that he pours himself out into the lives of the people he ministered to so that he might present them mature or complete in Christ. It's the same thing as he's saying here when he tells us to work out our salvation. He's saying that we must get to work. But, and this is, this is a critical but, like we won't ever be able to work out that salvation until we realize and understand that we don't need to work for our salvation. And so nothing that Paul says here runs against the grain of the wonderful good news that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Simply 
what Paul calls us to here. It's the right and complete response to understanding that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Obedience does not save us. It's the evidence that we are saved. And so that's why Paul does and can say, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. But he doesn't stop there and he adds more good news to that very command. So it's good news that we don't work for our salvation, but instead work out our salvation. In addition, it's good news that we don't work alone. Right? Verse 13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we must make progress in our sanctification But we don't do that by relying on ourselves or on our own resources. We must get to work. But we don't do that apart from God's work in us, enabling us to work out our salvation. Our job, it is to obey. It is to work out our salvation. But God's job is to work in our will and in our work in order to bring about our working out of our salvation. And so both works, our work and God's work, they're real. Both works, our work and God's work, they are necessary. We apply ourselves with our best effort and with all of our discipline, but God energizes that effort so that we will will and work for his good pleasure. And I hope you'll notice those, those two terms. It says, for God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because what you hear in that is that Paul isn't simply saying, like you do some work for God, and then he comes in and puts the finishing touches on that work. He's not saying that you get it started, and then God carries you across the finish line. He's saying that God indwells your work and inhabits your work and empowers that work so that you both will, meaning desire, and work, meaning act, according to his good pleasure not according to your own. In other words, this isn't like when I help my children clean their rooms. Right, if I ask my children to to clean their rooms, they'll do pretty good work most of the time. They'll get things started. Like the things that are obvious, like right in the middle of the floor, they'll clean those up. They might, you know, shove some things under the bed here and there. Um, But for the most part, they'll, they'll, they'll get things started. But then I'll come in and I'll see like the few finishing touches that need to be done. The pile of Legos on the floor, the dirty wadded up socks under the desk, right? I'll see those things and I will help them finish the work of cleaning their rooms. That's not how God works in us. Paul says he works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, he somehow mysteriously and powerfully bends our wills, what we desire, what we long for, And he somehow mysteriously and powerfully inhabits our works, how we act and what we do, so that what we desire and what we do come together to be bent towards his good pleasure. In other words, God makes us long for the things that he longs for, and he inspires us to work for the things he desires us to work for. He moves in us internally, not just externally. 
He's not like shoving us from behind with a stick. He's not poking at us and prodding us so that we go in the direction he wants us to go. No, he inhabits us inside in our very hearts and our affections in our wills so that we desire what he desires and so that we will and to act according to his good pleasure. Now friends, as we think about that, I think that is incredible and I think it's both encouraging and motivating. And I say that because many of us as we sit here, and and this is James Sharp, like as I stand here before you, like the reality is there are things that I have struggled with, immaturities that I have strived to outgrow, imperfections that I have strived to overcome, sinful habits and tendencies that I have bent to again and again and again in my life that I have longed to put to rest. What this passage means is that yes, I should labor to do that. Like I should work to grow up. But it also means that I don't work to grow up on my own. And it means that even as I work to grow up, God is working in me to empower and inspire and motivate that work to grow up. I mean, that is to me just a remarkable and an incredible encouragement. Because I was thinking about this this week. Like I just spent a little bit of time diagnosing my own heart and it's not, of course, the first time that I've thought about my character in my heart. It's not the first time that I've thought about my maturity or really my immaturity. See, as I diagnose my own heart, as I think about myself, there are a few like obvious characteristic sins in my life. Like characteristic sins that I have walked with and, and struggled with for years. They, it, there have been times when I've experienced some victory over these sins, but also there have been times when they've been like a tractor beam kind of pulling me back towards them. And these are temptations that I cannot overcome easily on my own. There's been progress, but there is also still a battle. And so if I, I mean like the most obvious, as I look at my own heart, the most obvious characteristic sins in my life are the sins of selfishness, pride, and anger. Right, if I'm just like gonna, gonna put that out there, like I, I am, by nature, fairly selfish. What I mean by that is that I'm generally more interested in my own comfort, in my own security, and my own prosperity than I am in other people. That's just, that, that's a sin that I struggle with. I'm generally proud. In other words, by nature, my heart, it craves attention and approval and praise like I'm desperate and eager for people to think highly of me no matter what. And, and in fact, like this works in my life in such a way that even right now at this very moment when I'm basically telling you how much of a mess I am, there's a sliver of my heart that wants you to think that I'm courageous and brave for being open about these things, right? Because that's how proud my heart is. And then thirdly, like the characteristic sin in my life that is most evident to myself and other people is, is really anger, and the way that works is that anytime my pride is threatened or anytime my selfishness is threatened, I respond in anger. Like I get angry because people, uh, they infringe upon my comfort. Or I get angry because people don't think that I'm as awesome as I feel like they ought to think that I am. And so I can look at my life and I can see these characteristic sins. These are things that I have struggled with for all of the 25 years I've been following Jesus 
and certainly the years before that as well. And there are moments when the power of these characteristic sins is great in my life. These struggles are real. But as I look back at the last 25 years, I am sure that these struggles are less today than they were 25 years ago. Like you can still find them in my life, no doubt. Perhaps they are just slightly less than they were, but they are less. The Lord has worked to change my will. The Lord has worked to empower my work. He is faithfully and graciously working in me to will and to work for his good pleasure, not for my good pleasure. Right? My good pleasure, it is broken and bad. The Lord's good pleasure is whole and perfect. And slowly and steadily, one degree at a time, he is moving my will and my work to conform to his good pleasure. And I say all of that, certainly not to exalt myself in any way, but simply because many of us can and will say the same thing if we really consider and meditate upon the Lord's work in our lives. Many of us can, and we will say, today, I am not who I want to be, and I am certainly not who I one day will be, but I am more than what I used to be. And that's because the Lord is faithful in this process of our sanctification to will and to work in us for his good pleasure. I pray, church, that that's an encouragement to you today and that that empowers you and emboldens you as you strive for sanctification, as you strive to put sin to death, as you strive to bear fruit for Christ and his kingdom. Know that you do not do those things on your own, but that the Lord works in and through all of your work, bending it to his good pleasure. That's the first connection. We work, and God works in our work to make it work. Let's look at the second connection here, beginning in verse 14. This is the connection between our contentment and our witness. Read again with me, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now to me, this is a sort of odd and unexpected turn that the Apostle Paul takes in this letter when he says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I say that's odd and unexpected because this is actually the first place in the whole letter to the Philippians where Paul specifically calls out any specific sin. Right, Every time up to this point in the letter, he's been generally encouraging, he's been generally positive, he has not put his finger on specific sin issues, and he has certainly not rebuked any particular sin. And so it seems strange that he would here all of a sudden bring up grumbling and disputing. I mean, that made me wonder, why is it that Paul thinks those are such a big deal? Why, why, what are those threats of? Like, what are, what are those challenging to? And so why does he do this? Why does he turn here to talk about grumbling 
and disputing. A couple of things we should think about. First of all, Paul definitely has some key Old Testament passages in his mind as he tells the Philippians and us to do all things without grumbling and disputing. And I say that because Old Testament Israel was notorious for grumbling and disputing. And in particular, the people that God led out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land were just notorious for grumbling and disputing. They saw the miraculous power and work of God, and yet they grumbled and disputed, right? The very people who were released from Pharaoh's iron grip, the very people who walked through the Red Sea as on dry ground while the water was walled on either side of them, the very people who followed around the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the very people who would inhabit the promised land were just marked by and characterized by grumbling and disputing. You can read about it all through the Old Testament. They grumbled and disputed because they thought the desert, the wilderness was hot. They grumbled and disputed because they didn't like the taste of manna. They grumbled and disputed because they didn't like um, the fact that they didn't have enough meat to eat. They grumbled and disputed because it was such a long way from Egypt to the promised land. They even grumbled and disputed against Moses' leadership, which is just the incredible part of that story to me, right? Moses, the man who delivered them from slavery through the the Lord's power like he leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai he leaves them there he goes up onto Mount Sinai where he meets with God he hears the voice of God he asks God to pass before him so that he might see God's glory God does that he comes back down the mountain and his face is literally radiating the glory of God so that he's like blinding right the Israelites they can't look at him they ask him to cover his face with a veil he does that and then they immediately turn around and complain about what a rotten leader Moses is Right, that the people of Israel, they are just prone to grumbling and disputing. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, as Moses is describing those people, he describes them as a crooked and twisted generation. That's why I'm sure that Paul has the Israelites in mind as he's telling the Philippians and us that we should avoid grumbling and disputing, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now why, why is that such a big deal? That's really the question we ought to ask. Why are grumbling and disputing so serious? They're serious because the great spiritual danger that ruined many Israelites in the wilderness is a spiritual danger that can ruin us as well. And it's one of those spiritual dangers that doesn't seem dramatic, it doesn't seem scandalous, right? We're not talking about blasphemy or murder or adultery or anything that's gonna wind you on, put you on you know, a most wanted poster, right? It's on no one's list of most notorious sins. But the great spiritual danger that, that ruined Israel, it can ruin us as well, is the danger of discontentment. That's at the very root of what Paul is writing here. People grumble and they dispute because they are discontent. And that discontentment, Paul says, it dulls our witness so that we do not shine like lights before a watching world. If discontentment robs us of the opportunity to witness for Christ, what is contentment? And how do we fight for it? 
Well, we start by noting that Christian contentment is not in any way tied to material things. It's not in any way tied to physical circumstances. It's not in any way tied to earthly relationships. Now, Christian contentment, it comes from knowing and remembering the truth of the gospel. That's why in verse 16, Paul's gonna say that to do this, we must hold fast to the word of life, to the gospel, right? Christian contentment, it emerges when we understand and celebrate the truths of the gospel, the truth that we deserve nothing but death, when we remember and celebrate the truth that we have received by grace, life, and when we remember and celebrate the truth that one day we will enter into glory, Right, discontentment, it comes when we have a gospel amnesia and forget those things. And it's ruinous because it precedes virtually every other kind of sin, right? Like Israel in the wilderness, they sinned because they forgot about the goodness and grace of God. And we will sin in the same way for the same reason when we don't remember how good and gracious God is. But when we learn to fight for joy in the gospel by remembering the gospel, when we learn to preach the truths of the gospel to ourselves and to to set our eyes on the glory and beauty of Jesus, when we remember to meditate on the spiritual riches that we have already received in Christ and the glorious riches that are still one day to be given to us, then we can walk in contentment and we can fight the spiritual danger that discontentment brings. And we can shine like lights in the world, even in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. John Newton, who was the British theologian and pastor, well, once slave trader, turned theologian and pastor after God miraculously changed his life. Newton is, of course, most famous for writing the words to the hymn, Amazing Grace, but he once used this, this illustration to, to make this great point about Christian contentment. He said, imagine that you have, that there's a man who lives in London and he has a far off relative, a distant relative, somebody he barely knows, who lives in New York City and who dies and leaves him a large inheritance. Right, imagine that this man, he's gonna receive this inheritance, but to receive it, he has to go all the way to New York City. And so he does that because the inheritance is so large that he, he knows that it's worthwhile to, to travel the distance to get the inheritance. And so he books his passage on a ship from London to New York City and he boards the ship and, and sits on the ship for however many weeks or, or months it takes to get there. He gets to Ellis Island and he disembarks and he goes through customs and immigration and everything else that he has to go through. And then he, he hires a carriage to take him into New York City where he can finally, at the end of this long journey, receive that inheritance. But then, when he's just a mile from his journey, the carriage breaks down and he's forced to walk that last mile. Now considering the entire distance he's already traveled and considering the rich inheritance he's going to receive once he finishes those travels, we would think that this man would walk that last mile joyfully. And that's Newton's point. He asks, what a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. His point is, homeboy is about to inherit a fortune. 
All he has to do is walk a mile. Shouldn't he do that with joy and without grumbling or disputing? Brothers and sisters, in the gospel, we have been given a glorious inheritance. Paul says that we've been given already every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. First Peter tells us that the inheritance that is awaiting for us in glory is unfading, imperishable, and undefiled, meaning it's pure and pristine and nothing can corrupt it. Right In the gospel, we have been given a glorious inheritance, that we deserved death. We've been given everything that we could hope for. This life, it's walking a mile into the city. And you know, your carriage might break. You might suffer. You might endure trial or torment. Things might go poorly in this life. But remember, you deserve death. You've already been given life. And there is glory to come when you reach that final destination. If you will live with these realities fixed firmly in your mind and your heart, you will walk in contentment and you will shine like a light in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So I just ask you today, who is it that needs to witness your gospel-saturated contentment in Jesus Christ? Who is it that needs to see you live like Jesus is really all you need? Because there is no more powerful testimony to the grace of Christ than when Christ's people live like Jesus is all we need. All right, give me just a couple minutes for this third connection. It's the connection between our service and our joy. Look back at verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. By the way, when Paul says that, he's talking about his death. Right? He'll use that same phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, my death, has come. And so when Paul says here in Philippians 2.17 that he's already being poured out as a drink offering, he means upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am about to die. Clearly here, Paul does not think he's going to live much beyond the Philippians receiving this letter. But notice that that doesn't discourage him. That doesn't deflate him. His joy is unwavering, even in the face of that. He says, even if that's true, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so just witness how rock solid Paul's joy is there. Just witness how unwavering it is. Why is it so secure? Why is it so solid? Why is it so stable? Well, it's because Paul understands that it is better to give than to receive. He understands that the truest, surest, most stable path to joy is through self-sacrifice for the sake of Christ. And the world says that if you want to have joy, you need to get and get and get. The world says that if you want to have joy, then you need others who will serve you. But Paul understands 
that the truest, surest path to joy is not to get and get and get. It's to give and give and give. He understands that the surest path to joy is not for others to serve you. It's to serve others. And so I ask you lastly today, how can you pursue joy like this? Who is it that you need to serve? Who is it that God has put in your life who will benefit from you being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of their faith? How can you find joy in giving of yourself, in serving of yourself for the glory of Christ and for the good of others? Church, we are never more like Jesus and there is never greater joy in Jesus than when we serve like Jesus served. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, emptying himself, coming in human form and becoming obedient unto death. He poured himself out for us like a drink offering. We give him glory and we find joy ourselves when we pour ourselves out for others. May the Lord find us faithful in that. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the fact that the sure and true and certain path to joy is not in taking or getting, but in giving of ourselves. We pray that you would move in us and lead us to give joyfully and freely of ourselves. We thank you for the connection between our contentment and our witness, and we pray that you would allow us to be people who are deeply content because of who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray that that contentment would lead us to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation. And we thank you for the beautiful hope that comes from knowing that you work in all of our work as we strive to obey you and grow into maturity in you. We praise you for the fact that we do not do that alone. We praise you for the fact that we are energized by you in us, working so that we will and work according to your good pleasure. By your power and grace, may we grow in obedience for your glory. Amen. Thank you.